you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 2, new book. 1 Kings chapter 2. So if you've been in 2 Samuel, your Bible falls open there. It's just one more book to the right. 1 Kings chapter 2. This morning we're going to read the first 12 verses because it's going to bring closure for us to the life of David. But we're really going to focus our attention on those first four verses in our sermon today. So God's word says in 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, when David's time to draw near died, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let him be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me with when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, I pray that today you would reveal to us the true source of our strength, the true source of our courage. I pray, Father, that you would call us back from the wrong definitions of success, that, Lord, we might live a life that is characterized by joy, peace, and contentment. I pray, Father, that you would call out brothers and sisters who may be resting on their laurels or coasting in the kingdom of God, that you would call them into the action of your service, the action of your kingdom, that they may realize the fullness of who you intend for them to be. I pray, Father, that as we hear these wise words from, from David to his son Solomon, that, Lord, they would penetrate our own hearts like they must have penetrated Solomon all those years ago. Lord, we pray that you would say what you have to say and that we would forget what we need to forget. Lord, move in us in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So just imagine what it would be like when you come to the end of your life and you know that you have one final conversation left with the people that mean the most to you. 
One final conversation left with those that are going to carry on your family name, with those that are going to carry and, and pass the torch down to the next generation. Your kids are there and they're, they're gathered around your deathbed. And they're wanting to hear from dad. They're wanting to hear from mom. They're, they're wanting to know what is most important. It's a time when the vanity of sports has faded away. It doesn't matter how much is in the retirement account or how much isn't. It doesn't matter about all the small talk that you pass the time away with. No, it's time to talk about what really matters. What would you say? What would you say? What would you say to those that, that you have to carry forward your legacy and your name and move the mantle forward for your family in your last breath? You know, I've had the opportunity to talk with a number of people over the years who have looked death right in the eye, who thought it was quite likely that they were going to die. Maybe it was a cancer battle, or maybe it was a near-death experience that happened suddenly. But what I can tell you from every single one of those conversations is that what those men and women will describe to you is a perspective-shifting change in their priorities. And the things that, that, that matter. That suddenly... The conversations that were too awkward to have, awkwardness is not a barrier anymore. That, that suddenly the things that they never got around to saying, they can find the time now to say. So what will you say? What will you say? If you were to glimpse your own death, if you were to lay on your own deathbed, what will you say? That's what we see in David here. David is there and he's on his deathbed and he's got his son around him. There may have been other people there, but we know here that he's talking directly with his successor, the one that will carry the baton forward, Solomon. And so we have to understand and believe that David is here saying the things that are most important to him. He's talking about the things that, that he feel like, feels like are, are most urgent. There, there's no time for vain conversation. There's no time for the things that are of low significance. This is the time for that which is most important. And if you think about David, David had seen a lot of things in his life, hadn't he? When we come to different places, especially toward the end, it's common for us to reflect over our lives. And so we have to believe that the conversation that David is here having with Solomon is the result of great reflection and meditation upon his life, upon what God has done, about, upon what he has seen. David has seen giants fall. He has seen Israel double the size of its territory. Israel went from an afterthought to an international power under his reign. And David knew what it was like to be on the run from his enemies. David knew what it was like to have a hand-to-mouth existence and to wonder if he was going to live from one day to the next. David knew what it was like to sin greatly against the Lord and to experience the discipline of the Lord. And at the same time, to be restored by the Lord. That is, we might say that David at the end of his life, had a Ph.D. in the School of Hard Knocks, right? Some of you probably feel like you have a Ph.D. from the School of Hard Knocks. Like, everything in your life, as you reflect back, you just wonder, how did this happen, and how did I end up here? And, and you look back, and you see the scars, and you see the memories, and, and you've seen the, the times in which you've fallen flat, and the times in which you couldn't be consoled in your sobbing to the times of utter victory and triumph. So, we're hearing here, as David talks to his boy, the lessons from the school of hard knocks. Lessons that no doubt many of you have learned, but, mess, mess, but lessons that all of us either need to learn or need to be reminded of because they are the things which matter the very most as we prepare ourselves 
to stand before the Lord. The first thing that I want you to see that David taught to his son was to live, we had a little bit of a glitch there, to live with good courage. To live with good courage. Now, if I were to ask you what commandment in the Bible is given more frequently than any other commandment, what would you say? I bet that for most of us, we would think that the commandment that comes up most common in the scriptures is the commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, or to love your neighbor as yourself. And we know certainly by Matthew 22 that that is the greatest commandment, but it is not the most pervasive commandment. It's not the most pervasive commandment to obey the Lord your God. Do you know what the most common commandment is in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That what God says to his people more than anything else is don't be afraid. Now, for me, that seems like a strange commandment. If one of us this morning, God forbid, if we found out that one of our children had been diagnosed with cancer. And you have a mama and a daddy and they're shaking in fear at the thought of such a a grievous loss and such a a difficult battle that, that laid ahead. I bet not one of us would go and wrap our arm around him and say, You shouldn't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It seems foolhardy to go to someone who is trembling and afraid and to say, do not be afraid. You just want to say, well, thanks. That helps a lot. I appreciate it. But what we have to understand is behind God's commandment to not be afraid is an invitation. Now, when God commands his people, do not be afraid, he is not simply telling them what to do. He's inviting them about to whom they should go. He's inviting them to have courage, but to have a good courage, a courage in the right way, a courage that has the right source. Think about this. All of us have had kids, you know, know, and maybe you've experienced this personally as an adult. I don't know. But those kids that are afraid of the dark, right? You you go in their room, and and what do you do? You, You open up the door of the closet, and you say, look, there is nothing in the closet. Go to sleep. You close the closet door. They, they're still afraid. You come back up in there and, and you're, you're turning on the lights and you're trying to show them all the reasons that they don't. And then you say, you, you tell, repeat the promise. I will not, my daddy will not let anything hurt me. My mommy will make sure that I'm safe. And you tell them, repeat this to yourself over and over. And yet what happens? They're still afraid. In fact, that, that child can, can puff out their chest and flex their muscles and act like they're going to go and be big and bad. But as soon as the first noise happens, they're afraid Again, they can pull the blanket over their heads and pretend like the, they're not afraid. Pretend like the threats aren't out there. To pretend like it's not a big deal. But beneath that blanket, beneath that veneer, they're shaking, aren't they? What's the one way, the one way to comfort a fearful child? The presence of someone they trust. The presence of someone they trust. And that is not just a law for children, it is a law for all of us. That God has designed us not to be comforted by strength, not to be comforted by knowledge, not to be comforted simply by trying to cover it up and pretend as though the threat is not there. God has designed human beings to live in relationship with him so that we can only be comforted by the presence of a person. The person of the Lord. And so here David is telling his son, he says, be strong, be strong. 
And he's not calling his son to some form of, of machismo or some form of, of secular masculinity. He's not saying to his son that he needs to go and uh, get a, a membership to Planet Fitness. He's not telling him to take steroids or to buy more guns. What he's telling him is to identify the right source of strength, to have the right kind of strength, the right type of courage in his life. Not just any old courage will do. It must be good courage. It must be courage that is rooted in his knowledge and relationship and the nearness of God with him. I wonder this morning, where do you find courage? Where do you try to find your strength? Is it isn't in your intellect? It is, is it in your success as a business owner? Is it in your financial prosperity? Is it in your, your looks? Is it in your relationships? Is it in your popularity? Where are you trying to find strength? Because it's quite likely that all the sources of strength that you're searching out are empty cisterns that are leaving you dry and trembling and anxious and worried. And the invitation is, is do not be afraid. Because the Lord has invited you close to himself. The Lord has invited you to to draw near to his personhood and to live in relationship that you might not just be told to be strong, but have the very presence of strength right there in your midst. The kind of strength that David outlines here in 1 Samuel 17, 37 as he stands before the nine-foot giant Goliath and he looks like he's headed towards certain death and everybody, all of Israel is trembling in fear up on 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 the hillside. And do you remember what David said? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David had learned through the school of hard knocks that the source of real courage was the deliverance of the Lord. But it wasn't just his concern that David have the right kind of courage and strength. It was his, it was his, his concern that David be the right kind of man. Look at what he says. Be strong and show, demonstrate, display yourself a man. Be strong and son, show yourself to be a real man. Show yourself to be a man of character, in other words. See, you got to think about who David's talking to here. David is talking to Solomon, the prodigy. Solomon is a five-tool player, if you're familiar with baseball terms, all right? Like, he's a five-star prospect coming up. Like, he's LeBron James rising through the ranks who doesn't need anything to go straight into the NBA. He's got it all. He's handsome, all right? He, 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 is, he is smart. He is wise. He is well-educated. He has been trained to be the king every day of his life. He's charismatic. People like being around him. He's a natural-born leader. It's obvious. It's obvious to David and to everyone who knows him that this is the man that God is going to use to move Israel forward, that this is the man that has been designated to be the successor of the king. And with that comes great threat. It comes great threat. Because you see, a man can become so enthralled by his own charisma, by his own competency, by his own press clippings, that he can fail to be concerned with his character. And so what David is saying is, son, I don't care how handsome you are. 
Son, it doesn't matter how far you can throw a baseball or how many of your friends think that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Son, it doesn't matter that you can marry any woman in the kingdom and they would be happy to have you. It doesn't matter that you have all of the wealth and then some. What matters is, is what kind of man are you? What kind of man are you? See, David's uh, ascension to the throne had been much different than Solomon's ascension to the throne. Think about that. David was a shepherd boy. He was living out, scraping the manure off the bottoms of his feet, okay? And God came out and found him and said, look, I know nobody else is going to believe this. Nobody else wants you. Nobody else respects you. You're going to be my king. And so he had these humble roots that, that brought him, and God used that in David's life. But Solomon was the exact opposite. Solomon had been raised as the second coming. Solomon had been raised from birth to be the king. Solomon had a silver spoon in his mouth from the very first day he came into the earth. He was raised with the lifestyle of a prince. And David had learned firsthand the threat of success on the character of a person. You see, it's not just, it's not just when our dreams are crushed that our character is revealed. It's when our dreams are realized that our character is revealed. And there's a sense in which David is saying to Solomon, Son, you're going to be able to buy whatever you want to be able to buy. You're going to be able to do whatever you want to be able to do. No one will hold you accountable. You are autonomous as the king, as autonomous as a man can be on this earth. Who will you be when you can be whoever you want to be? What will you do when you can do whatever you want to do? See, that's, that's the test of character, isn't it? Who are you? Who are you? When you can be whoever you want to be? Who are you when suddenly you're not an employee? You're the one that is given the directives and given the orders and bringing the accountability and doing the performance reviews. Who are you when you come home and your home is the place in which you have some form of dominion and rule? What kind of person are you? How does that reveal your character? Who are you when you get the the raise that you've been waiting for for a long time and suddenly you have a little bit more money coming in? How are you living? What do you become? What do you do? Who are you? It reveals your character. It reveals the nature of who you've always intended to be and who you've always desired to be and what's always been in your heart when you have the opportunity and freedom to do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be. And so David is saying to his son, I want you to live courageously. I want you to live a life that that is characterized by strength and boldness. But I want you, in the light of success, to be humble and a man of character. A man that walks and lives and not dependent upon his charisma. And not dependent upon the silver spoon and the authority that he has. But dependent upon the Lord. And so David is ultimately saying, what I want for you, Solomon, is to live the right kind of life. What I want for you is to live the right kind of life. I want you to think about this. Look at what David says. I am about to go the way of all the earth. All the earth. Kings and peasants. Rulers and regents. The the mighty and the feeble. The beggar and the, the man who has more than he could have ever spent in three lifetimes. All of them. All of them go the way of the earth. All of them are going to lay on their deathbed. 
All of them, unless Jesus comes back, is going to, are going to face this inescapable reality. And here is David reflecting back on his life and reminding Solomon, Solomon, son, this life is going to pass faster than you expect it to pass. It's going to be like vapor that rises from your coffee cup and blows away with the wind. It's going to come to an end quicker than you expect. It's going to happen at a pace that you cannot keep up with. And when you come to my place, when you go the way of all the earth and you look back over over your life, what kind of life will you see? What kind of life will you see? We see a life that was wasted on, on momentary fleeting pleasures, or will you see a life that was filled with substantial purpose and meaning in the eternal scope of what God is doing among his people and on this earth? And I look at you this morning, and that's the same question that's asking every single one of us. Every single one of us. We are going to go the way of the earth. We are going to go the way of the earth. One day, the clock is going to strike midnight on every single one of us, and we're going to have a moment to reflect back over our lives and what we have to decide, whether you're 15, 25, 35, 75, or 95, this morning, there is a day coming in which you will reflect back and you will be wondering, why did I spend my time like that? Why did I go here? What did I do? Or you will look back and you will see the presence and the hand of the providential God and think, only God could have done that. Only God could have worked that way. Only God could have delivered me like that. Are you living the right kind of life? Are you living the life that you want to present and offer to your family on your deathbed? More than that, are you living the kind of life that you want to stand before your king and offer to him when you step out of this life and into the next? Then you must live with the right kind of strength and be the right kind of man or woman that you might live the right kind of life. Next thing David instructs Solomon to do is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. You can remember there was a time in David's life in which he began to buy into his own press clippings. And into which he began to kind of want to rest on the laurels of his accomplishment and look out over his, his kingdom and think about all of the great things that he had participated in and all of the great battles that he had won and all of the great expansion of Israel and the peace of Israel and the prosperity of Israel. And he had paid the price. That is, there, there was a time in David's life that he could think back and remember when he had forgotten who he was. There was a time in David's life in which he allowed pride to step in and to interject itself so that he didn't realize how, how expendable he really was to the plan of what God was doing and the work that God was doing. And so he's tapping into the pain of those experiences and he's looking at his boy and he's saying, Son, son, never forget who you are. Never forget how you got here. Never forget what, how, how you arrived and ascended to this throne. This is what he means when he says, keep the charge. An, another way for us to think about charge that might be a little more common to our way of thinking is calling. Keep the calling that the Lord has established for you. That in other words, what, what David is reminding Solomon is that Solomon did not apply to be the king. Solomon did not seek out and, and earn the kingship. Solomon did not do anything based on his merit that deserved for him to be anointed the king. Solomon had been drafted 
by the Lord into his service. Solomon had been chosen by the sovereign grace of God to come in and to be anointed as king and to lead God's people forward. And because it was not based on what Solomon had done, it was not based on some qualifications that he brought to the table, it was not based on on him being the best out of a thousand applicants, but it was because of the sovereign grace of the Lord, then this was a call on his life that he could not take credit for and he could not escape. Why? His life was not his own. His life was not his own. God had done it, not Solomon. He was who he was, not because of who he was, but because of who God had made him to be. And I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that if that way of thinking would break out among Christians today, it would change all of Christendom. If that kind of thinking would break out at Iron City Baptist Church, we would never recover from it. If that kind of thinking would break out in your life, you would be a different man and a different woman going forward and there would be no change, no turning back. That if we would come to the realization that like Solomon, we have been drafted into the kingdom of God by the sovereign grace of God. And we have been drafted into a kingdom where not that we have no place, but we have a specific role to play. And God is looking to his people that he has brought into his kingdom and he is saying... Keep the charge. Live out the calling that I have placed upon you. Do the work that I have set before you so that you can be a part of what I'm doing in all places across all generations for my glory to go all time. It is a calling because it is by grace that we cannot take credit for. And it is a calling at the same time that we cannot excuse or be without. Because it is by grace that we have been made these things. It is by grace that we have been set apart. We have been drafted into the Lord's army. What I hear very often in my discussions with with Christians, we talk about missions or we talk about serving in the life of the church or doing something in the community. Here's what I hear all the time. I'm just waiting to hear the call of the Lord. And once God tells me my calling, you better just watch out, bro, because I'm coming, okay? But I just ain't got that, I ain't got that call yet, you know? I ain't got that, I ain't got the little tap on the shoulder, the you know, send in the lefty kind of thing. But when once I get that calling. And most Christians, most Christians live and die without ever getting in the game because they misunderstand the nature of the call. You are not lacking a call. You are lacking faithfulness. Do you know what the call of God is? The call of God is not a warm, gushy feeling that you have where where goosebumps raise and unicorns come and angels play the harp and says, thus shall work with the preschoolers. Thus shall come in and and delight in the nursery. That's not what a calling of the Lord is. A calling of the Lord is a God-presented opportunity for you to show one more time that you are living a life that is dedicated to Him and to Him alone. It is to seize any opportunity, comfortable and uncomfortable, hard and easy, exciting or obscure to come in and to take hold of the opportunity that has been set before you that you might show I am not my own I do not live for my glory I have a call on my life drafted into the army of the Lord to show that God is greater than my comfort and God is greater than what I want and God doesn't need me but he's willing by his grace to use even me even me can I just let y'all in on a secret 
There ain't nobody serving right now in kids' praise because it's easy. There ain't nobody serving in children's ministry this morning because they got a warm, fuzzy feeling. And if they are, they are the exception. And that's why those are the people that need to lead the rest of us who, like me, it is a labor of love. But you know what we need? We need some brothers and sisters who say, I'm not waiting for a warm and fuzzy feeling. I am ready right now to lay down my life on the cross that it might be counted for Jesus Christ because the cross is not convenient and the cross is not easy. The cross is the gracious calling of my life right now until I get to the next life where I will experience the resurrection joy of rest forever. You're not lacking your calling, but faithfulness. And so David is looking at Solomon and he is looking at us and he is saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. But he also wants to make sure he knows that you better remember who you're not. You better remember who you're not. And I think that's what gets to the rest of what he's saying here. Notice the the possessives here. He says, walking in his ways. Now whose ways are those? Those are the Lord's ways. That's who he's keeping his statutes, his commandments. His rules, his testimonies, as it is written through the law of Moses. He's making a point to Solomon. He's talking about that Solomon's responsibility is to live within the boundaries of God's word. That God's word, that God has established a way for Solomon, and Solomon cannot veer to the right or to the left. He must go in God's way. God has has established a fence around Israel and they must live within the law of Moses because God's law is is the binding of the promise between God and his people. It is the expression of his covenant. It is the way that his people express their love and their confidence in the Lord. And so the Lord has established this and, and David is reminding Solomon, you must stay within the boundaries of what God has said. In other words, by going over and over and saying this is, this is about God's ways and this is about God's commandments and this is about God's rules and this is about God's testimonies, what he's reminding Solomon is that you are not actually the sovereign. You are not actually the sovereign. You are a vassal king. The Lord, he is the one who is sovereign and reigning over his people. It is not your words that you were able to rewrite. It is not your freedom to go and to chart the path of Israel. The Lord, the Lord has established their path. The Lord has established their word. And the Lord will determine their fate. Your responsibility is to remember who you are and who you're not. You are brought in by grace and you are not the ruler of your own domain. You are the vassal king representing the almighty God among his people, bringing them always within the boundaries of the law. David knew the pain of stepping outside the law, didn't he? David watched as as his sin dismantled his family. David watched as his sin cost people their lives. And it reminds me, it reminds me of of a dog I used to have named Rambo. Rambo was a crazy dog. You ever had a crazy dog? But just one of them that you couldn't help but just love. You know, he was so goofy and crazy. You'd get so mad at him, and then you, then he'd look at him. He had this little hair that stood up on the top of his head, and you'd be like, "Doggone it, come here!" You know. But, but we had a fence for for Rambo around the around the uh, around the yard, and Rambo would go and he would press his little nose up against the fence, and he would always want to get out of the fence. One day, one day he got out. 
He got out. He'd been pressing up, and he had seen all the freedom and all the fire hydrants and the food and all the girl dogs in town. And, like, he was ready to get out, and he escaped. And he got out, and the neighbors are yelling at him, and the cars are flying by, and, and he almost gets hit, and he's scared to death. And he did the strangest thing. Rambo came to the edge of our fence, and he began to howl. And he began to cry. Dad, Dad, let me back in. Let me back in. You see, what Rambo learned the hard way is what many of us learned the hard way. It's what all of your parents want to keep you from learning the hard way. It's what David wanted to keep his son from learning the hard way. Is that God's fence is not trying to keep you from happiness. God's fence, the boundaries of God's word are trying to keep you from harm. They're trying to keep you from getting hit by a car. That there is greater freedom and greater joy inside the boundaries that God has established for his people than there are outside. But we spend all of our time with our nose pressed up against the fence, hoping to find some way to get out. Regretting that we were raised in a Christian household that has these kinds of standards. Or or regretting that we can't go out with the guys after everybody else gets out off from work. Or, Or regretting that we can't go and indulge in relationships the way... Everybody else around us is an indulging and our, our face is up against the fence. But what David had learned and what I hope this morning you will learn is if you get out of the fence, it will bring harm to you. It will bring harm to you because you're not the sovereign. And sometimes you just have to trust that the Lord's way is the better way because he said it's the better way. Because what God is wanting is he is wanting his people to be able to come in and to know who they are in him, selected, drafted by his sovereign grace, brought in to live within the boundaries that he has established, that they may be able to walk in a happiness and in a joy that the world can't even begin to comprehend. And so this morning, I hope, I hope you'll remember who you are. And I hope you'll remember who you're not. That brings us to the final thing that I think we see here that David teaches his son, and he says, aim at true success. That what David is wanting to do for his son is he's wanting to to take his eyes off the here and now. To take his eyes off of of what's right in front of him. He's, He's the king now. He's in charge of the treasury now. The military is at his beck and command now. But what David wants to do is to take his eyes off the urgency of the present situation and to cast his vision wider. To make him look down the road. To see that he's a part of something that's bigger than himself. That his faithfulness or his unfaithfulness is going to outlive him. David is the living example of this. That whether you are faithful or you're unfaithful, your faithfulness and unfaithfulness is going to one day outlive you. And so he gives us these two that's. These two that's in the text. There in the end of verse 3, in the beginning of verse 4. And these that's are there to, to help cast up the eyes of Solomon. So whenever you see, whenever you're doing a Bible study and you see the words like that, it's explaining to you the, the desired consequence or the consequence of what's just been said. And so what David is saying here is if you keep the way of the Lord, if you keep your charge, if you walk according to his commands, if you live according to his statutes, if you stay within the boundaries and the confines that God has established for his people, this is the result. And he says, first of all, that you may prosper in all that you do. That you may prosper in all that you do. Now, what do we mean by prosper? 
prosperity in the church, it ought to make us a little uncomfortable and edgy these days because it's been manipulated. Well, prosperity, quite simply, in the Bible, it it means that when you become who God intends you to become and you accomplish what God intends you to accomplish and you're able to do those things with peace, joy, and contentment. And that last part's important. That you become who God intends for you to become, and you accomplish what God has set before you to accomplish, and you are able to do that with peace, joy, and contentment. That's prosperity in the kingdom of God. Now, in the old covenant with Israel, uh, when, when God's people were centered as a geopolitical nation that often came by the blessing of wealth and, and financial good and the advancement of territory, But in the new covenant, no longer is God's God's hope uh, centered upon a geopolitical power in the place. Instead, God is drawing a single nation among the nations. He is drawing to himself an international remnant that he is bringing to himself by his glory. And those people are living in places like Ukraine, where there's brokenness, where there's not prosperity advancement, where, where you may give up and die for the good of those who are beside you. And so prosperity in that setting isn't about what happens on the exterior. It's about what God is doing inside of you. That he is still forging you into the man and woman that he would have you to be. That he's still setting before you the ability by his grace to accomplish everything that you, he would have for you to accomplish in this life. And then when all the world is spinning out of control, that you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. That you can have a joy that is impossible for you to articulate. That you, like Paul in Philippians chapter 4, can say, I know what it is to be brought high and I know what it is to be brought low, but I have learned the secret to living with much and with little. That I can have, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A contentment that abides within you. That no president like Putin can take away. That no nuclear threat can put under threat because you are inseparable from the love of Christ in the new covenant as the people of God. And so I think there's a place here. I think there's a place here to ask, what definition of success are you aiming at? What definition of success are you aiming at? Because you see, however you define success, that charts the path of your life and that alters and sets the trajectory of where you're headed and what you're aiming at. So what are you aiming at? Are you aiming at more things that you can buy? Are you you aiming for the accomplishment of more of your personal and selfish ambitions? Or are you aiming to be able to be the kind of man or woman God would have you to be and to accomplish what God has set before you to do and to be able to do that with peace in the midst of a frantic world, joy in the midst of a depressed world, contentment in the middle of a discontented world? So he wants him to aim at true success. That's the first that. There's a second that. He says, what I want is that the Lord may establish his word. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the promise that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons play close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne. So what he's talking about is that now, now Solomon, I am passing the baton to you. And so as I pass the baton to you, I am passing the promise to you. And so Solomon, how will you steward the promise that God has given to us? How will you steward? I have finished the race and now you're up to the starting line. And the question is, Solomon, will this kingdom be better situated in the providence of God, in the will of God, when you depart as it is right now? How will you take and steward the promise that God has given to us? Will you allow the, the kingdom to be perpetuated through you? 
See, I think what David is doing here for Solomon and what this does for us is it calls for us to have a multi-generational view of our lives. That your life is not just about right here, right now. Your life is about who comes after you. And there's a question that ought to be right here in front of us. And is, is my family going to be better off at the end of my life than they were at the beginning of my life? Not in financial means. Not, not in terms of earthly prosperity. But is my family going to be more firmly rooted in the covenant of God because of my life? Is my church? Is my church going to be better off as a result of my membership and my commitment there among that body? Or is my community going to be better off? Is, is, is my world going to be better off because I lived in it? I was thinking about this, you know, this past week. We laid Ralph Vaughn to rest. And I still have in my mind Ralph riding around on the lawnmower and just think of all the things that he did. Ralph Vaughn swung a hammer to build this building that we're sitting in right now. He swung a hammer to build this building that we're sitting in right now. And as I thought about Ralph, I thought about Edwin Lester. Edwin swung a hammer in this building. I thought about Pete Brooks. Pete, the, Pete and Sylvia, the first missionaries I ever knew with my life. And I got to serve as his pastor. And what I came to the realization is that there's a passing of the baton that's happening here among us, brothers and sisters. The Lord is taking away from us a generation of patriarchs that have stewarded this body of Christ, that have stewarded the light and the promise that has been given to us that was given to them. And they left it better than the way they found it. Look around us, brothers and sisters. We stand on their shoulders by God's grace. And the question comes to us, will we leave it better than what we've found it? As they hand the baton to us, will we take the baton and run? Or will we back down from the work that needs to be done? Will we back down from the inconvenience that is there to be had? Will we back down from the responsibilities that they have passed us? Will we swing the hammers? Will we rock the babies? Will we teach the teenagers? Will we share the gospel with this community, passing forward to the next generation? We've got to aim at real success here. We've got to aim at real success. Real success is not about how many people we get in our church, and our church is growing and it's exciting. Real success is not based on how big our budget becomes. Real success is not based on how many buildings we ultimately get to build. Real success will be determined by the disciples that we make, by the missionaries that we send, and by the baton of the gospel that we hand over to the next generation. Brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, let us learn from those who have graduated from the school of hard knocks and let us take their expertise and take it forward as stewards of the gospel into the next generation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.